Good morning, everybody. Hello, hello. If you're joining us online, online, hello, my name is Luke, if I haven't met you. I look forward to meeting you in person one day, if that's possible. Um, but it is warming up, hey? I mean, I don't want to speak too soon, and, uh, but the sun is out, the power is on. There's much to celebrate this morning. Um, uh, I'm really, really excited to kind of be landing... Uh, well, uh, the, the second mini-series in the book of James. We as a church, we're working through the book of James, uh, and uh, we've broken James up into four mini-series, right? The first one we did was around how our faith grows in trials and hardships, and, uh, and how God uses those things to develop us. Uh, the second one is around real faith. Um, and uh, next week, Sunday, we pick up the next one for six weeks around true wisdom, um, true wisdom. But I'm landing today the mini-series around real faith. And the idea being that, um, and, and really uh, you can see it comes from our slogan for the whole of the book of James, real faith, real faith for real life. The idea being the book of James, James, I mean, James almost writes this book like the, it's, people speak of it as the book of Proverbs in the New Testament. It's short, it's sharp, it's punchy, and it speaks to all of life. Now, that's what he's doing. He's really, he's, he's pulling no punches, but he's speaking uh, to the way in which our faith connects to life. I've set my timer. Um, uh, real faith and real life. That when your faith is real, when faith comes from God, takes up residency within you, it transforms your everyday life. And today, uh, James pulls no punches, right? Uh, today will be no different. How are we going to do today? We're going to read our passage of Scripture, James chapter 2, verse 1 to 7, if you want to make your way there so long, and then I'll share the big idea. And then what we're going to do is we're going to work through it verse by verse and apply it to our lives. Um, and hopefully by the end of it, we'll all of us be kind of searching our hearts to say, God, keep working on me, keep transforming who I am. But what we have to do by way of introduction before we jump into this message is we have to understand what James is doing. James, in this message, and like countless others in his book, well, actually, we can count them, they're not that many, but like many others in his book, he is outworking the fruit of the gospel in our lives. James is outworking the fruit of the gospel in our lives. In James chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 18, he says this Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth, synonym for the, the, the gospel, that we should be a kind of first fruits. In other words, James is saying this. There was a moment, now that you're a Christ follower, there was a moment where the gospel came and took up residency within your heart. You became a Christian. You believed the gospel. You, you received faith from Christ, and you, you put that faith onto him, and you became alive by the power of the gospel. Something altogether new was placed at the center of who you are. Your primary worldview, your, your core belief system, something altogether new out of this world comes from heaven. The gospel was put at the very center of your being. Now that thing, that, that, that gospel now is growing within you to permeate all of who you are, how you think, how you desire, what you long for in life, how you relate to other people. This gospel is transforming you. It's shaping you. It's faith that comes from God to the center of who you are, but then you nurture it and you embrace it and you work with it. And as you do, so you are transformed. In one of Rigby's axioms, um, Rigby planted Common Ground Church 25 years ago, Rig and Sue. And uh, Rig says this, he often speaks of gago, gospel in, gospel out. This is not just moralism. James is not just coming with a big stick saying, you should be like this. 
It's not, he's saying, no, no, you've got to understand something new has been put at the center of who you are. It is alive, it is growing, it is changing you, it is shaping you. Now live in these ways. Gospel has come in, now the gospel needs to work out through your life. You see how this is not moralism, this is the word of truth put at the center of who you are. And now you're beginning to give expression to that gospel in and through your life. It's real faith transforming your life. And so this is James now looking at the church and he's saying, hey, here's one way something has gone wonky in the church, but it doesn't fit with the gospel that you've received. So I want you to realign how you live with the gospel that you've received. The momentum of the gospel is at work in you. Now realign your life to the power of the gospel. Does that make sense? This is not just now you have to do this thing. It's not a, this is who you are. The gospel is alive in you. Now live faithfully to the gospel. So, so we read here, uh, James chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. My brothers, show no partiality. Key word today, no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down here at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Like he gets our attention again. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Let's pray and then let's trust God to speak to us through this message. Father, we come before you now. We thank you for your word. Thank you that you inspired these words all those years ago. We ask that you would speak to us today. Hey, we gather on the southern tip of Cape Town in Africa, thousands of years from where James initially penned these words. But Lord, we believe that you are with us in our midst. You're shaping us for your good. So will you do that, we pray this morning. Amen. As we read the scripture, the big idea today is faith and favoritism are incompatible in the family. Faith and favoritism are incompatible in the family. Incompatible, incompatible like anchovies and strawberry jam. Incompatible like Marmite and toothpaste. Help me out here, guys. Incompatible like sardines and condensed milk. Oh, unthinkable. But not the first time I have heard those two mentioned together, I must admit. It is a real thing. Incompatible faith. Real faith in Jesus Christ and favoritism, partiality, are incompatible. Where? Incompatible in the family. Let's look at the family. Let's break this down. Looking first at the family. Verse 1. My brothers. Do you see that? James frames this. My brothers. Actually, the, 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 the Greek there is gender inclusive in this instance here. It's my brothers and sisters. You, many translations actually use that. My brothers and sisters, using familial language, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I want us to see family here in two places. The first one is in the word, uh, the, the intro, my brothers. He's reminding them. Before I tell you this thing, I'm going to tell you that's so important. I want you to remember who you are. Who are you? You're brothers and sisters. You are family. If 
he's saying you are part of something that is bigger collectively than you as an individual. You're connected, brothers and sisters. You're in the, he's addressing, uh, this is the primary way the New Testament addresses Christ's followers, brothers and sisters in a family. You receive the gospel, then you're joined into a family like this one. Yeah, my brothers, he says, but then he, he gives this interesting title to Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord of glory. I don't know if you see that there. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, uh, or the Lord of glory. Now, it's quite a mouthful for a title. And, and, and in English, you'd kind of read it and you'd go, wow, that's, that's, I get, that's cool, whatever. But you, you wouldn't properly understand just how difficult it is to translate this from Greek to English. Translators have struggled. In fact, for a lot of church history, they translated it one way and then have recently, as scholars have looked at it more and more and more, many of them have come to see it another way. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord or the Lord of glory. What's going on here? Speaking of Jesus, the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that bit's okay, but it's this, the Lord of glory. What's going on here? Um, in the Old Testament, glory was equated with the localized presence of God. The, the, the Hebrew word, for those of you guys who may know, is Shekinah glory. It's the localized presence of God manifest in the midst of the people of God. It's God is actually there. It means the very presence of Christ in the midst of the gathering. Remember Jesus said, he said, he said uh, wherever two or more gathered, there I am with them. It's the localized presence of Christ in the midst of the gathering. And so James is using this strange collection of words to make a title for who Jesus is. And, and in a sense, he's saying, he's saying, the Lord Jesus Christ is there present in the midst of this family gathering. As you gather as brothers and sisters, Christ, the great older brother, is present with you. Jesus presences himself in the midst of this gathering. So what does this mean for us as Christ followers? It means this. If God has knit you into this community or is knitting you into this community, then it's not just come on a Sunday and kind of get your spiritual goods and services and carry on with your personal life. No, no, no. God knits people together into a family into a diverse family with different hopes and different dreams and different cultural backgrounds and different stories, every single one of us, different histories that he brings together and unites us into a family. But here's the thing, that family becomes a visible manifestation of the family of God to a watching world. That family, this family, becomes a visible manifestation of the family of God to a watching world. South Peninsula, South Peninsula, if you want to know what the family of God looks like, come into this gathering and have a look at this family, and you should get a window into what the family of God looks like. Look at this family. You see what James is doing? You see what is going on here? Church, I hope you can feel something of this call from James. I hope you can just, it's just in the way he addresses the believers. This is almost taken for granted. He's reminding them of who they are. It is impossible to represent Jesus and followership to Jesus, living Lone Ranger Christianity. It is impossible to represent followership to Christ, living Lone Ranger Christian. What do I mean, Lone Ranger Christianity? I'm a Christian. I'm not really part of a church. I kind of connect with God in my own way. I come, I dip in sometimes, then I dip out some other times. It is impossible 
to represent Christ and live like that. Why? I'll tell you why. Because God is a family. Because God is Trinitarian. Because God is triune. God is, I mean, you've heard this said, you've heard God is love. You read in the Bible, but you also hear it said a lot in our culture. A lot of people like to think of God as God is love. God is loving. God is primarily love. If you, if you peel back all the layers of, of God, who he is, God is love. And you know what? The good news is it's absolutely true. If you peel back all those layers, was a trick, hey? Ogres have layers, he said, hey? Ogres have layers. If you peel back all the layers and you get to the very, very core, you know what the core, core is for God? You know what the core character trait of God is? It's love. That is only, only true of the Christian God, and it is only true of the Christian God because he is Trinitarian. By the way, a doctrine, the Trinity, that is so unusual that no one could have just made it up. Why is this? It means that before God was creator, before Genesis 1-1 and he created the world, before God was judge over the world, before God was ruler, before God was sustainer, before God was all of these things, before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, before that God was always a family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it was this perfect relationship in perfect unity with one another that overflowed into creating the world in which we know. That's why we know this world is fundamentally good. It's why God declares time after time in creating, it is good, it is good, it is good. When he creates human beings together uh, in relationship, he said it's very good. Why is this true? Because God is Trinitarian. And so, 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 so we as, as Christ followers cannot represent a Trinitarian God in Lone Ranger Christianity. It's impossible. It's an oxymoron. It, it, it is just, it's like and condensed milk and sardines. Because God is a family in the Trinity. That's why Jesus said this. He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another as I have loved you. How, how will people know? How will people know that this is real? How will people know that this is not just a cool idea, a great way to go through life, just one of many options to choose from in our world? How will people know that? By the way in which we love one another as Christ loved us. How did Christ love us? He had everything in heaven, lacked nothing. And gave it all up for us who could offer him zero. And we became recipients of everything because he loved us. Faith and favoritism are incompatible. Why? Because you're in the family. Now, it's in fact for James, it's in the family that these kind of deficits in their faith are being um, exposed. It's the old residue. Remember I said the gospel is put at the center of who you are. It's transforming who you are. Your primary identity is now in this gospel in Christ, but there's a residue of your old self now. One of the residues of the old self in the believers that James was writing to was exposed because they were in family. Warren Wiersbe says it like this. He says, the way we behave toward uh, people indicates what we really believe about God. Your faith is only really tested and, and displayed and, and, and worked out and the deficits exposed in family and in relationships. I'm not talking nuclear family, um, you know, at home, when you go home. I mean in 
This kind of family setting, family exposes our true faith. It exposes the deficits in our faith and our character, and they bring us to the point where we've got to choose. Either I'm going to withdraw from family, or I'm going to push in and be transformed where I've been exposed. Today, I want to put to you, push in, be transformed. James says one of the areas where these Christians are struggling in their, fa- their family life with their faith is the area of favoritism. He uses the word partiality. Uh, if we can bang up uh, verse 1 there again, Nerdin. Uh, the one before. You see the word there, partiality. It'll come up there in a second. Partiality. The Greek word for partiality literally means, if we translate it completely literally into English, to receive somebody according to their face to receive somebody according to their face. It's judging a person based on external appearances. Could be their wealth, could be their status, could be their skin color, could be any characteristic that's visible from the outside, and you judge, you value, you rank that person based on this external character trait. James had identified a significant problem in the family, in the church, That's particularly relevant to us as South Africans, if we're real honest. We live in one of the most unequal and divided societies on the planet. And we've got to realize that we are particularly vulnerable vulnerable to the same sin of favoritism or partiality. So James goes on to describe what it looks like. And he says, hypothetically, just with as a little aside here, we're not sure if this gathering that James is about to describe is a court gathering or a worship gathering. Um, more recently, commentators are saying that it's actually probably a legal court gathering, the kind of gathering where believers get together to decide, hey, what's right in this instance? How do we help two people navigate this? But we don't have many of those. So I'm going to speak about it um, as a worship gathering, right? And so here's the hypothetical situation. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, right? The gold ring and the fine clothing. The word gold ring in Greek literally means gold fingers. Okay? So you get the picture. James describes Mr. Gold Fingers. He's got so much gold on his hand, he kind of leans a little bit like this as he walks into the gathering, right? And as he comes in, his hands are just so hard lifting such all this gold, right? And as he walks into the venue, the speaker, the sound system sort of kicks in, right? And, uh, and, the, and the venue uh, sound comes on and then he comes right and everyone kind of knows here he comes he's dragging his hand because his gold is so heavy James says as well he's wearing um, he's wearing shiny clothing right shiny clothing so you can imagine he's got bling he's maybe got silver dollars all over him now um, that's cool we can we can wait for the next one and uh, and his clothing is literally James uses the word he's got shiny clothing right? His jacket's so big, it's got cash everywhere. It's just so heavy walking with all this cash in my pockets, right? This is the dude. Uh, When he pulls up in the parking lot, he's got those rims. You know when the car stops and those things keep spinning, but it's like silver dollars, right? And they're just spinning. And and, and, I mean, James literally describes this guy in such a way that his clothes are so fine and his money is just dripping off him that when he walks in, everybody, he catches everyone's attention and everyone's sees who he is. He's dressed up like a showstopper, guaranteed to catch everybody's attention. Now, this guy arrives in our gathering one Sunday, and just so happens this same Sunday, a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and the soundtrack changes, right? And uh, in, works, in walks the poor man, 
uh, and the music kicks in. You know, Hello Black. And the way James describes this guy is, um, is he literally, the, the word he uses here is the man's clothing is filthy. In walks this guy and he is wearing not just shabby clothing, he is wearing filthy clothing. The Greek word here is the word reserved for the most destitute of all people, right? He is the most destitute of all people, a person with no means. He's both needy and he's helpless. He's got no means, not just got no money, he's got no means, he can't even earn money. Probably the only clothes that he had were the clothes that he was wearing. And those clothes were mismatched, and they were not fitting, and they were smelly. And so, same Sunday, these two visitors walk into the gathering, right? And the story continues. James says, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, sit here in the good place. You come sit here in this place of prominence. don't know why I went to my chair. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, and sit here in this place of prominence, right? And, and then you say to the poor man, you, you, you sit here so that nobody can see you, right? We don't want people to know you're here. Hide him away somewhere here. The problem that James is exposing is that in their preferential treatment and in their neglect, their favoritism that was lurking in their hearts now manifests itself in discrimination. He says this, James says this, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Instead of treating visitors on equal footing, James says you've become evil in your judgment, strong words. In your hearts and in your minds, you've made distinctions on how you value people based on external things, on external appearances. And James says to them this, here's what you seem to have forgotten. Listen, my beloved brothers. You see, again, it's family. He brings you back. He says, no, no, you're part of a family. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? God's chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of something else that's coming in the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. This word dishonored, very strong in an honor and shame culture. They really have blown it tremendously here. James reminds them that most of the believers in the early church were poor. Most of the believers in the early church were poor. If anything, James is saying, God has shown favor to the poor and not to the rich. The body that Jesus drew together, the body that, or the family that Jesus drew together, the family that, uh, that he drew together in the, in the church in which James was writing to at the time of the letter, for the most part, were poor. If anything, James is saying, God favors the poor over the rich. And so it's worth stopping and asking, why is that so? Does poverty make people more attractive to God? And the answer is emphatically no, because then we would be praying that everybody would be poor, right? Because then everybody would come to faith in Christ. No, no. Does, do riches make people unattractive to Christ? And again, the answer is no. Of course they don't. Rather, what's going on here is the poor are more responsive to God. Having less resources and having less means on their, on their own, they come to see God as their only hope far easier than those who are people of means who can, in a sense, guarantee their own protection, guarantee their own control of their circumstances because of, the, of their wealth in the midst of this world. And when, you, when you're poor, it's easier to hope in the kingdom of God 
because your own personal kingdom is so much less attractive. And it's this that makes the poor so much more receptive to the gospel, James is saying. And it's why the poor become recipients of faith and become heirs of the kingdom of God. Both in this age and in the age to come. James wants us to see one another according not to our earthly position, but according to our spiritual position in Christ. This is very, very difficult for us. We live in a world where everything is kind of based on superficial exterior. And James says, no, 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 you've got to look through that. He gives a second reason, and this one's more contextual to James's uh, crew. But he says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Now, James is writing to Christians about non-Christians in the community here who were wealthy and were using their wealth as a means of exploiting the Christians who were poorer in the community. So James says, you're favoring the rich, but isn't it the rich who are busy exploiting you? What are they doing here? They're dragging these poor believers to court so as to try and get more money and, 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 and uh, to develop their own wealth more by, by getting rich off the poor. And James says, it's, it's just so strange that you would favor the wealthy when in fact it's the wealthy who are stealing from you and dragging you into court. And it's interesting, the rich are not condemned for their wealth, but they're condemned for what they did with their wealth. They blaspheme God, James says. Said differently, they go against the power and the majesty of God by behaving in a manner that exploits the poor. And James says, this is inconsistent with gospel behavior. This does not belong in the family. James's point is the church inciting with the rich has done the same thing to the poor man that they themselves are aggrieved that the rich are doing to them. James is effectively saying favoritism, especially against the poor, is in direct contrast to the teaching of Christ in whose name you and I as Christ followers are supposed to live. Faith and favoritism are incompatible in the family of God. It's worth us just stopping here and reflecting. Because it is, I mean, how do we apply this to our own lives? The answer is we've got to search our own, on our own hearts. It's easy to, to hear this hypothetical situation that James is describing and think, wow, wow, it's, it's, it's so true. Those guys are so bad. How can they do such a thing? Hey, I mean, geez, those guys, hey? And, and we arm's length from there. But you forget, you live in a society that's been so geared to disciple you, to form you, to think the same way. If we're really honest, it's so easy to get caught in this trap, so much easier than we ever would like to uh, admit. We live in a society that is so divided and it's so polarized. And so quickly, when things break in our culture, we, we, we form tribes, we band together, we side with causes, we, 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 we align with groups based on external characteristics in our world. We have to recognize that if you're living in South Africa, which you are, it has to start, it has to start with us as the church where we start to embrace this truth and this reality. South Peninsula, if you want to know what the family of God is like, come and look at this community. 
because they are free from favoritism. They've been so transformed by the gospel that they've reckon, we have recognized that that kind of partiality it doesn't exist in us. It's dying in us. Day by day, it's dying in us. We're learning to see one another according to our true spiritual position in Christ. And here's the thing. I know we've got a long way to go. We've got to recognize the intentionality and the, the, the deliberateness of the forces that were at work in our society to bring us to this divided place. It took laws, it took decades, it took animosity, it took injustice. All of these powerful forces at work in our society to divide us and to cause us to see one another in this particular way. And so, if this is to be true of us of a church, it's going to take the same kind of deliberate intentionality to overcome this evil in our midst. Every one of us has a tendency to try and to connect with people that are externally more like ourselves. We socialize either with people on the same socioeconomic sort of level of us or, or, or higher. We struggle, the language, downwards. We struggle to socialize to those with less than us. Naturally, we don't do it. And so we've got to be honest. We've got to be honest with Christ to renew us. It, it, the great tragedy, it might not look like it looked in James's context here. Perhaps it's not as overtly as sinister in our context. But it's, it's the sadness of, the, uh, in a sense, as I was prepping this morning, I was mourning the loss of the relationships that never happen because we're so conditioned to think the way we think. That our lives would be so much richer for, that our community desperately, desperately needs us to model. And that just remain at arm's length to us because these things pervade our hearts still. And manifest subtly in our lives. We know how to end a conversation quickly without an invitation to our home. You know, you, you learn these things in life. And I'm saying, James is saying, no, no, no. Let this not be true of us. So let's come before Christ and let's ask him to speak to us. Remember, this is not moralism. This is not, now you must do this thing. This is something new has been put at the center of who you are, the word of truth. You have a real faith that is now permeating and trans, transforming you. The culture in which you live and the society in which you live used to make you think like this. But now the dominant force within you is the gospel and it's pushing that back. Darkness is being pushed back and light is coming out in how you live and love one another. Let's embrace the gospel to transform our lives. As we hear James's message, that faith and favoritism are incompatible in the family of Christ. Can we pray together? Can we stand? And I invite the band to lead us. Let's just be quiet before Christ. Jesus, thank you for your word. We, we, we recognize just how our society and our culture has been forming us, discipling us to think a particular way about one another and ourselves. And we recognize that this is incompatible with the gospel that you've put at the center of us, God. It also feels like in our society it's the one sin you can't name because you, there's just so much shame and you're instantly excommunicated, forgotten about in our world. And yet it's so, 
if we're honest, it's prevalent every day in our lives, in our own hearts. So Christ, we come before you today and we would ask that the, the word of truth, the gospel that we've received, not just do more, try harder moralism, but the gospel and, the, and your Holy Spirit that indwells us and fills us would push back the darkness of favoritism in our hearts, God. Would push back the, this worldview, this way of thinking that we've picked up in our culture and our society and would cause us to view one another through your eyes, Christ. Jesus, would you change my heart? Would you open my eyes? I think this is a personal prayer for each of us. Jesus, would you open my eyes to see others as you do? Would you forgive me, Christ? where I've not pursued relationships that I could have and should have. And I've pursued others because they were, they were easier or maybe they were more beneficial to me. Christ, we want, to be, we want to be the kind of family that represents your family one day. So Jesus, help us as a church. I pray that you would put grace on us as people grace upon us to see through your eyes, to love in your ways, and that that would form us into an extraordinarily different kind of family in the midst of this world. We're asking you to do this in us. Perhaps you're here today and you, you realize that you need help. This idea of something new being put at the center of who you are, the gospel received, forgiving us from sins and empowering us to live an extraordinarily different kind of life. That's what's been missing from your life. That's you. The way we come to Christ is we pray this prayer. Pray this after me. Jesus, I realize I long to be more than what I am. I feel I do not have the means within myself to become that. But your gospel, your, your spirit within me, That's what I'm asking for. And so, Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin? Would you empower me with your spirit to live in your ways? Christ, I want to follow you and not my culture and not my society. Not even this weird script that I feel sometimes in my own heart. Christ, I want to follow you. Will you, will you take my life and will you remake me that I would become like you and love like you and live like you? Let's worship together. Maybe you want to just take this song and this gap to do some personal business with Christ as well.